This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Plowshares in the Palatinate, a novel. And the author is Phyllis Harrison, and Phyllis joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Phyllis. Hi. Good to have you with us. Now, I'm going to read your statement that you would give to a friend concerning your book in a sentence or two to kind of give an overview. And and you say this, you say, question, what do Barack Uh Obama, Paul Revere, John Jay, Alexander Hamilton, and millions of American unknowingly have in common? And then you answer your own question. You say, ancestors called Huguenots who came from a time and place where questioning the absolute authority of the French Catholic Church meant a death sentence. So this is a historical fiction, right? This is historical fiction. Yes, it is. And why did you write it? uh, Well, I wrote it because I discovered that one of my ancestors in the 1600s had children that were born in four different countries, and thinking that must have been a mistake during, you know, this time when we did not have jet setters, I did a little more research and found out that it was true. He had escaped with his life just barely in France, went to live in the Netherlands, lived for a time in the Rhine River Valley of what is today Germany, and eventually came to this country. And I was amazed that he could have survived so much and uh, thought that someone should be writing about it. It was just an interesting time and place interesting times. So you're going to take us back into the 1640s, back into uh, the Netherlands city of Amsterdam, but then Mm -hmm. you're going to take us to the uh, new Amsterdam as well, correct? Well, um, actually, he goes into the Rhine River Valley and settles in what is today Germany, and he takes his new Dutch wife with him and his growing family. And uh, he joins up with French settlers who are also leaving France, trying to reconnect with his people, but he encounters some difficulties along the way. Now, this is the city of Amsterdam during what you say is her golden age. Now, tell us about how this, this city is enjoying such wealth and fame. Okay, the West India Company and the East India Company have trade ships that are going across the world. They're going to China and to India. They're going to the new colonies that will later become the United States of America. And they're bringing back all kinds of wealth and goods. Um, The people who are living there are Peter Stuyvesant, uh, Rembrandt Van Rijn, the painter, uh, Joseph da Costa, Aaron Van Court, Curler, um, just a lot of people who contributed to a lot of our thinking and enlightenment of artists and scientists, um, 
Rene Descartes was living there, and living in this small town and passing these people every day in the marketplace must have been amazing, and just watching them unload the ships with the wealth coming in from other continents, it must have been an amazing time to be living there. Now, this young French refugee, he is the main character. What is his name? His name is Gilles Montreville. And he is our hero? Yes, uh, sort of our hero. People often ask me, why did you choose a, a teenage boy to tell your story? And I say, who is less interested in politics and religion and what you should do than a teenage boy? And he really starts out having no interest other than in himself and, and what's in it for him. But he comes to see that it does affect him and his life. Now, is this the second book that that is all tied together on this complete story? Is that correct? Yes, it is. Uh, I started writing the book and really enjoyed it, and uh, I have never been a person who is very brief in, in what they're saying. So when I finished it, I tried to get it published, and they said to me, oh, no, this is way too long. You're going to have to throw half of it out or split it into two books. And so I did split it into two books, and the first one, The Fires of Europe, tells how this young refugee escapes France and comes to live in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And so this book, Plowshares in the the Palatinate, is talking about his experiences in Amsterdam and how he's uh, just getting through life? Right. The city of Amsterdam is has great opportunities, but it also has great plagues. Um, it's also filled with refugees coming from all over the world. It's uh, very difficult to try and find employment there. So he feels that he can do better by becoming a farmer in the Rhine River Valley. So he goes up the Rhine River and decides to join up with other French refugees in a farming community up there. And this story is about his experiences there, and it does parallel some of my ancestors' experiences, of which he wrote about. So tell us about some of his greatest challenges. (laughs) Um, One of my greatest challenges was making sure that it was historically accurate. I had a few dates that I, I changed some of the events that happened, Um, but I had to make sure I wasn't writing about some item that wasn't invented yet or words that were not in common usage yet. I also tried to write in my character's voice by using Latin and French words wherever possible or if the character was Dutch or German in, in the vernacular of their day. Obviously, I couldn't make it too true to life or it would be very difficult to read but uh, I tried to make it as well-researched and as true to to character as I could. What are some of his personal desires, his personal uh, dreams, his goals, and and how does he come about realizing them? Right. My character comes from a very privileged background, and uh, he's expected to follow in the family business, which is trade with the great ships. 
but unfortunately, he's in the accounting end of it, where he's expected to sit in dark counting offices, as he says. So mainly his motivation is to meet some young women and to have a good time and uh, not to be stuck in the counting offices, although he is pretty good at what he does. So he's looking for adventure, but at the same time, being in the situation that he's in, there is a reward being offered for him, and there are bounty hunters that are looking to take him back to France for execution so that they can make an example out of him. So mainly he's looking to stay alive, have a little fun and a little freedom, and just live his life the way he wants to live it. And why did they want to arrest him? Because he was from an important family, and he was accused and convicted of being a Huguenot, which is to say not a good Catholic, not following the teachings of the Catholic Church. And so they feel that a public execution would be a good example to other people, especially since he's from a well-known family, and it would discourage anyone else from having such inclinations. So he is on the run? He is on the run. He is hiding in Amsterdam, and he's always looking over his shoulder and feels that the Rhine River Valley might be a little bit more remote. It might be a little bit more difficult to find him there. He can just kind of blend into the farming folks that, that uh, are established their lives there and just become one of them, I guess. That's right, out in the wilderness, and since no one wants to go there, it's such a poor area, he feels, what could be better? I'll just go out and live my life in peace. No one will know who I was, who I am, and uh, life is good. Well, there must be some bad guys that are chasing him. Is there any one main character that, that we get to know? Um, well... That's part of the the question. He's not sure who his friends are, who he can trust, uh, who's after him, and who's not. Um, and he goes in with these people thinking, these are my people, these are French people. And his wife goes in with these people thinking, these are my people, I don't speak their language, but they're Protestants like I am. But actually, the difficulties they find are more with the people that they settle with and their intolerances and their difficulties with each person's individual brand of freedom. So I guess lesson to be learned uh, even in today's world. I see a lot of parallels, and I find it fascinating that Paul Revere, John Jay, and Alexander Hamilton, these great thinkers that established, you know, so much of our law and uh, had such input into the Constitution and Bill of Rights, uh, came from this background. And with that in mind, I think they were trying to tell us a lot more about, uh, you know, the intent of the law as well as just the words that were written down. And, of course, just the basic principle that people want to be free. They want to be free to choose what how they want to live. That's right. That's right. Now, we've all heard a very uh, frightening word, the plague, and this was going on during this time, right? Yes, it was. Uh, in fact, one of the most interesting books that I've ever read was Daniel Defoe's The Plague Year. 
and he talks about uh, within five years of the time that my book was supposedly written about the Great Plague of London that wiped out, I think it was half of their population or, or maybe more than that. It would just come in and it would wipe out an entire city. And while I was writing and getting more and more detail in there, I, I had way too many pages, so I had to cut a lot out of it. But these were things that people lived with every day. And smallpox would wipe people out too, you know, an infection just from a cut on your finger. There was nothing that could be done. The uh, obviously famous character of history, Martin Luther, plays an important part in your book. Yes, um, he lived uh, much earlier, but he's the one that really started the schism between uh, the Catholic Church and, and who would be Protestants later and all the different sects that would come after that were not Catholic. He started everything rolling, but really there were so many difficulties in Germany, that, or what would later be Germany, it was German states at the time, that it was very difficult for them to figure out who was winning or who was losing or what was going on. And the same in England. England was a minor player, although there are a lot of books that were written about King Henry VIII and Henry's daughter Elizabeth I. Um, during Shakespeare's time, and this was a little bit before my book. Um, but from these different people who had their own reasons for doing away with the Catholic Church, um, different, different people tried to go in different directions. And today we have so many different religions in this country and, and across France and Germany and, and England, but we don't really stop to think how everybody got there and, and the different steps along the way. The two major players were Spain, probably Spain was one of the biggest ones, and the Netherlands, and France also. They, they had great control over the wealth and the trade. It's just that they chose to deal with their dissidents in a different way. Spain and France tried to execute everyone who disagreed with the government, and the Netherlands and Germany decided to give them freedom. So anyone who loves historical fiction is going to really enjoy your very comprehensive work. I hope so, because I've tried to make it very interesting. Um, I don't really like a lot of gore or, or explicit information that really takes away from the story or distracts from the story. But they were rough times. Bad things happened. And so I've tried to make it interesting, but something that everybody of all ages could be interested in. And I've had preteens that I know who've read it, you know, people who are interested in history and reading, and they really liked it too. So everyone from you know, 12 years old to 92. Phyllis, tell us how to get your book. Okay, you can order my book from iUniverse, uh, www.iUniverse.com. You can also order it from my website, www.phyllisharrison.com. And uh, any good, reputable bookseller, uh, we have some fine independent ones that you can get your book through and also Barnes & Noble, um, 
Amazon.com, a variety of places. Well, we really appreciate you sharing your views and and your insights into this very, very uh, difficult time of man's history. Uh, It's hard to relate today to the 1600s, but uh, these people really just wanted exactly what we want. They wanted to be free and and live the way that they chose to live, correct? I see a lot of parallels. I really do. Well, thank you, Phyllis. It's interesting to think about. Thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you so much for having me. That was Phyllis Harrison. She is the author of her book, Plowshares in the Palatinate, a novel. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio for the cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, 13 Months with an Angel, Learning to See God's Plan During the Trial. And the author is Steve Patterson, and Steve joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Steve. Hi, how are you doing? Well, good to have you here, and good to have you share this very personal story, very emotional story with us. I'm going to read some uh, statements that you have shared to kind of set up a general view of what your story is about. You say the incredible story of how God used one family with a special needs angel to reach out to others and to demonstrate God's strength, his power, but above above all, his love for us. 
And then you also have dedicated this book in loving memory of our son, Braden, who was with you for 13 months, and uh, your brother, James Allen Patterson, and all the special needs children in the world and their families. So this book, 13 Months with an Angel, I guess that really the title in of itself kind of tells us that you had this young child, Braden, only be with you for 13 months. So with all that pain uh, and dealing with this incredible event in your life, why did you write the book? Well, Steve, we uh, originally started learning uh, through Braden that God has a way to communicate with others uh, in a special way. Our, our normal world uh, was pretty much shattered whenever we went in for a normal uh, delivery with Braden, and then when complications uh, came about, uh, Braden went approximately 17 minutes without uh, heartbeat or oxygen, and from that point on, it uh, was strictly uh, a higher focus that we had to have uh, for our day-to-day lives. Primarily, the reason that I wrote the book was I wanted others to know that you know God will provide hope and strength and comfort when faced, uh, you know, with difficult challenges, such as in our case, we were challenged with, you know, trying to take care of a special needs baby. Primarily, I'd say the, the motivation uh, that drove me to write this book was, was God. He, he moved my heart to communicate this story uh, with others as best I could. And I also had an overwhelming uh, feeling that I felt from him, uh, from God, for us to, to share this story with as many people as, as possible. Now, Braden was born July 11th. Two, uh, Braden was born July 11th, 2001, and he passed away August 22nd, 2002. Now, when you first realized that uh, there was going to be some complications, of what did the doctors tell you at that moment after the birth? Well. When we first realized there were complications, we were actually still in the labor room. Uh, we had gone in, as I mentioned, for a normal delivery. They, uh, Braden was actually a week past the due date. We went, at, went in at 7 a.m. to have labor-induced. Tracy, had, is my wife, had labor-induced at 7 a.m. Around 5 p.m., uh, Braden just uh, wasn't progressing down the birth canal as, as normal uh, births go, and the doctor and myself were actually outside of the room in the hall, and he communicated to me that he felt like uh, it might be time to do a C-section just because Tracy was getting tired, and and he felt like Braden was getting tired, and and we walked into the room after that discussion, and immediately the monitors uh, went off about that same time, and that's when Braden's heart had stopped, and so they were just jerking the cables out out of the wall, uh, the doctor and the nurse, and <clears throat> pushing Tracy uh, down the hall to the uh, operating room. They were they were running while pushing her, and literally ran into uh, a custodian's cart on the side. There was such a, a hurried uh, knee or sense of urgency, and so. Once in the operating room, I wasn't allowed, uh, while they were prepping Tracy, to be in there. So I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know if uh, Tracy was going to be okay. Uh, I didn't know if Braden was going to be okay. I didn't know anything. They finally let me 
down at the edge of the operating room while they did a C-section, emergency C-section on Tracy. And still, I hadn't had no correspondence with the doctor, uh, you know, since the time they rushed Tracy uh, to be operated on. Only after I saw them carry Braden, and, and it was a sight that I'll never forget it, you know, they, they carried Braden from Tracy over to the table to, to clean him up, and he was totally ash white, kind of a gray. His arms were limp, and it's just, it, it, it was just, you could tell that there was no life. And uh, I kept hearing the, those that were working on Braden uh, saying that they couldn't get a heartbeat, you know, they didn't have a pulse and they were continuing to bag him with oxygen. And all this time, uh, I just prayed and prayed, you know, for God to help me understand how I need to deal with this situation. Still did not know Tracy's circumstances. And uh, finally, I heard uh, one of the nurse practitioners say that they had a heartbeat, and then they had him breathing. And then they, they went ahead and rushed Braden off to the uh, neonatal intensive care unit. And then at that time, uh, Steve, is when the doctor mentioned to me that, you know, Tracy would be okay, and he asked if I would be okay. And that's the only uh, correspondence uh, communications that I remember with him at that immediate time. So the actual uh, seriousness of this 17 minutes didn't really hit you at that moment in time because after all your baby your baby now is breathing yes yes i uh you know i was so thankful that to, to know that he was alive and to know that tracy was alive uh at that point a, a part of me thought you know everything was going to be okay or normal and uh I did not know the seriousness of Braden's situation, nor did the medical staff at that time, because it was just too early to tell. So when did you know? When did the medical people know, and when were you told? Well, I guess it was, it was either later that night when, Tr- when Tracy uh, was able to go see Braden for the very first time, which was near midnight, uh, when she got to go see Braden for the first time, and when we uh, when we saw all of the, the monitors and everything hooked to him, and he was on a ventilator as well to help him with his breathing, uh, probably at that time we realized that without a doubt there were complications. And later, I guess that following week is when they actually ran some tests that verified that there was some some brain damage but it was still so early we didn't know what the extent of it might be but we were made aware you know that there was going to be some brain damage uh we still had hope that it might be minimal and something you know that that was a very early time for us to have a better understanding that what we've known for to be normal for all of our adult lives, we were being educated to what a new normal was going to be for us. Well, and then, and then obviously, uh, every day, I'm sure, more questions, more prayer, more uh, uncertainty, more 
if you will, of a deep, of maybe not as deep the pain as eventual, the, the, the size of the pain when, when Braden was uh, taken home, but at the same time, there must have been that deep down that pain just, that was just kind of growing. Sure. I mean, your heart, you know, your heart, when you're talking about your children, you know, any, any parent uh, can attest that you don't, you don't want to see and experience your child hurting. I mean, uh, most any parent would do anything to take a child's hurt or pain away, and particularly with all infants because they can't communicate to you, they can't talk to you, they can't, you know, uh, really tell you what's wrong with them. It, it's even magnified, and uh, our hearts uh, were just totally crushed with the situation that we were facing. But then on the same uh, note, our hearts were overflowing abundantly with love for Braden. I mean, we, we were so in love with him the way that he was and the key for us was before Braden was ever born, uh, Tracy and I had prayed for God to to give us the gift that he wanted. We never prayed for a boy. We never prayed for a girl. We never prayed for a healthy baby. We truly wanted, this was our very first child together, and we wanted God to bless us with a child that he wanted us to have. And so, Steve, I'll tell you, we, we felt like we were, exactly where we were supposed to be and we were we were looking at an opportunity uh to take care of a special child uh that god trusted us with so that helped ease the heartache if you want to say because we knew we were doing something that was pretty special well that takes a lot of spiritual maturity to face this kind of a situation, like you say, even right from the beginning, you were praying for God's will. Sure. So how did how did uh, you know? And we don't we're not going to go through step by step uh, through all the ups and downs, and that's why uh, obviously you've written the book and people can read that. But you know, you some of your chapters, you you can tell by the title of the chapters, that there's uh, a lot going on. Like one is the power of prayer. Another one is uh, God's love shines bright. Another one is seasonal memories. Another joy in tears. You can see that there's uh, up and down all the time. And that's kind of what I guess that 13 months was all about. Yes, it was. It, uh, <clears throat> you know, when, when Braden was born... I didn't know, uh, and Tracy didn't know, we didn't know really in some ways how to express our emotions uh, to some extent because, uh, you know, when you're faced with having a special needs child or let's say you have a special needs adult or anyone that requires special needs, you know, your mindset pretty quickly of those of the caretaker are you're not going to look at the negatives you're going to focus on the positives because the negatives are always going to be there and they will bring you down. And so, you know, you just focus on the positives. The writing and the chapters of this story, and I appreciate you bringing that up, I actually started writing some some poems and some short stories uh, because it was my avenue 
to express myself, to express my feelings from the innermost part of me. And, and I never have really done any writing un, until now, until I, I wrote this book. And the month after uh, Braden passed away, I was so moved to write this story that I just started actually just writing it in chronological order, uh, just strictly my thoughts. And I, and I would plug in uh, some of the poems and, and the short stories that are found within this book. But another thing that, that is really interesting that the reader might find uh, is interesting with this book is the month after uh, Braden passed away, Tracy found out that she was expecting a little girl. And, and it's just like God had, had blessed us with Braden, and, and, he, and we feel like he truly uh, appreciated everything that we did for Braden. And he turned right around and gave us a, a, another gift. And so with a sense of urgency, because I knew having another baby in a few months, I very well would not have the same memory of all the little intricate details of our time with Braden. So the, the hard draft of 13 Months with an Angel was done beginning the month after Braden passed away and primarily a month uh, before our daughter was born. And so uh, that way, there, it was a total clear, what I say, just uh, the details are very accurate. They were very accurate in my mind. But again, you can see that it's taken a while for us to get to this point where we're talking about actually having a published book. Because I'll tell you, Steve, when I wrote this, I just wanted to share the story with people that it, it might could help or they might want to read this. At that particular time, I really did not know I would be sitting on the phone, I mean, sitting here talking with you on the phone about a book that Steve Patterson published. That wasn't in my forethought at that time. Well, I'm sure your book will help a lot of people who are experiencing the same kind of trauma and the same kind of emotion, even though they're all unique experiences. There's, there's a common, common uh, pain and uh, journey that all people who go through this kind of experience share. So thank you so much for doing this, and thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. And tell us how to get your book, Steve. Well, you can uh, you can get it uh, by going uh, directly to uh, the link at iUniverse. It's you can just do a Google. You can you can do you can Google on uh, Thirteen Months with an Angel, and it'll come up. The uh, iUniverse website is uh, www.iUniverse.com. It's also out on uh, Amazon.com and. The easiest way would just simply just to, to go out and, and search for it, and it is available in, in some bookstores. We're still working on a regional campaign right now to, to promote it. I actually have a, uh, an author signing a week from Saturday at the Irving Mall in uh, Irving, Texas, and that's at the Barnes & Noble. So uh, there's, there's a few Barnes & Noble stores carrying it right now. You can just uh, ask your local bookstore. They can go online, and they can, they can search for it, and they can order it uh, pretty much from any bookstore.
Well, thanks again, Steve. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you very much for having me, and I certainly appreciate your time and, and the opportunity to visit with you. That was Steve Patterson. He is the author of his book, 13 Months with an Angel, Learning to See God's Plan During the Trial. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on toginet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives?, in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Scraps, Fictional Fragments, and the author is David Luck. And David joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, David. Hi, how are you today, Steve? Well, this is a collection of short stories, of stories that come from your experience of living near a a lake right there in Denver, and then some other, I guess, some other uh, stories from your travels? That's correct, of course, uh... The part of why I named the book Scraps is because uh, it's just a variety of stories gleaned from uh, many places and many people. Although, as you mentioned, uh, the first five stories uh, are centered around a lake here in Denver called Sloan's Lake. And uh, I came to write those stories. Uh, I'd been living in the mountains, kind of an isolated area, and I was used to taking hikes by myself and and uh, just not inter. Uh, just not interacting with people particularly, and I moved to Denver itself and a few blocks away from this lake, and suddenly here I was just uh, overwhelmed by people of all varieties and ethnic uh, mix and uh, all the vibrant colors uh, of the city, and uh, that just uh, brought my mind into overdrive, and uh, I started imagining what many of these people I met might be doing in their life, and uh, out of that came these stories, these lake stories, the first five. And you say readers will enjoy the story's characters as they wrestle, these characters wrestle with familiar themes of love, lust, and yearning. Well, I always laugh a little bit about uh, 
about that when someone asked me, well, what, what do you really write about? Well, I think most all of us writers write about the themes of life, lust, love, and yearning. And uh, with outcomes that uh, these stories have outcomes that sometimes uh, are not always what uh, you think they should be. And I think that's the surprise in many of the stories. Um, you use, uh, is it Garrison Keeler? Garrison Keeler quote. Yeah, the correct. quote, uh, writers are vacuum cleaners who suck up other people's lives and weave them into stories like a sparrow builds a nest from scraps. That's true. That's what, what we all do. And I know that in my own experience, that's what I do. Uh, sometimes not even realizing that I do it, uh, you know, meeting people and seeing people. I just collect these little tidbits, and uh, eventually those are woven into some story that I might uh, be writing. So as you uh, very specifically say, Scraps is not a quilting book. <laughs> but, you know, there are, there are these stories are like a tapestry of stimulating fiction. Now, what is the stimulating fiction? Uh, what kind of a theme do you have? Well, there's not a theme that goes, uh, you know, through the entire book in that sense, Steve, but the stories are, are just a, a lot of life stories. Uh, they involve people, real-life people, and what real-life people are, are dealing with, and how they, how they challenge each other, each other indirectly sometimes, sometimes very directly, and, of course, the... Uh, always the hidden theme of, uh, well, you know, is this going to be hurtful? Is this going to be loving? Uh, and, of course, sometimes the ending uh, will surprise even ourselves in our real life, and, and the endings will surprise us in these stories, too. And you touch on our memories, and you touch on our vulnerabilities. Well, that's really, really right. Some of these stories uh, came out of the past, um, I, I'm a native of Wyoming, and so I gleaned a lot of scraps from there, too. And uh, some of these stories delve back into my childhood. And uh, and I've had readers that have read the book, Scraps, uh, tell me, boy, this I really relate to this. I can remember doing this when I, was a, when I was a child. Or I can really relate to walking around the lake, uh, as you do in your stories, because I used to do that, and I used to see people that were just exactly like you portrayed them in this book, and they really have enjoyed reading this book, Scraps. So you've really tried to make it realistic because you say my characters experience and struggle with these different desires, and like us, sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not. That's true, and that's, uh, Steve, I've tried to write, I try to write realistically. These people are just like uh, you and just like me and just like the people we meet every day in our own families and uh, our own struggles and our own beliefs. And uh, sometimes uh, we get misled, too, by outsiders. And uh, then these stories in our lives, or our lives as portrayed in these stories, um, sometimes have surprising endings. We may dream about things all, uh, all our life, and uh, sometimes we realize those dreams, and sometimes we don't. And then sometimes we realize those dreams in a way in which we would have no idea it was going to happen. And I like to surprise readers that way. 
And you talk about the challenge of writing believable characters. That is really a challenge. It really is a challenge to write believable characters because you pick a character or you don't really necessarily pick a character, but a character comes to mind. And and I really try to put myself in that character's place and what would I do in this situation or how would I react to uh, this other person. Uh, And I try to make it as realistic as I can because... uh, I'm sure you've read books too, Steve, that the characters just don't seem real. You know, they couldn't do that, or, you know, they couldn't think like that. And uh, I try to avoid that. I try to make them just everyday, common, ordinary people, uh, just like you and me. And you call that realistic creativity. I call that realistic (laughs) creativity, right. And I think a lot of that, you have to be a real observer of life. And I I really think I am a, a real observer of life, of people and of life it's uh it's kind of like standing on a street corner and watching the people walk by but it goes deeper than that uh, people have coats on and clothes on and and they look a certain way but uh, how do they really look uh you know in their own mind how do they really look and uh, how are they really presenting themselves in the world and uh, kind of like looking at these people that way, really analyzing them and how we think they might really be. And, and how, being able to write that is the challenge. And how these characters might respond in a, in a different situation that you put them in. <laughs> that's, that's always a surprise to me, too. And I, <laughs> I enjoy that part. You enjoy that part. You know, all of a sudden, your characters come to life and they start talking, right? <laughs> that's right. And you go, wow, I didn't know they knew that. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Where'd they get that idea from? <laughs> Absolutely. You make this statement. You said some of the short stories in Scraps are re- are a reminder of simpler times, our history, something we all yearn for. Now, talk about that. Help us understand what you're saying there. A few of the stories in Scraps uh, come from simpler times. Uh, they, uh, they delve back uh, to a time when we didn't have all the electronic media that we have now. Um, there's two stories in particular. Come Spring is one, and the the other one is called The Box Social. And these are uh, these are events that occurred back in oh, say in the uh, 40s and 50s. Uh, and these were social interactions where people actually got together and did things uh, socially without the use of electronic devices. And I I kind of think that's interesting. Well, I I think it's very interesting because we are so attuned to doing everything through electronic media now. And in fact, you'll see some of the cartoons in in the everyday paper where uh, people uh, start to chat over the back fence and they say, well, you know, you can see my comments on Facebook. And uh, these stories, like uh, I mentioned, go back to a time when people interacted face-to-face and uh, the box social is a uh, where uh, sandwiches were made by uh, the women and and the young young women, and uh, then they were auctioned off, and they were always auctioned off for a good cause. Uh, but as a young uh, person, as you'll see in the story, you'll find out why he he started to perspire because he got his father to do the bidding for him. And these were social interaction things that we just don't. See anymore, and I think some people 
yearn for that. They yearn for simpler times, and they will enjoy these stories. Now, the characters that are involved with lake stories, are are these people that you knew, or these uh, situations, uh, experiences that real people went through, or is this just what you've created? These are all fiction, just what I created. Uh, they're created... Uh, or they are based on people that I saw, uh, observed around the lake on my walks, and uh, I just made up these stories about them. They, I never met any of those people in, in the lake stories. They're just truly fictional stories that I uh, invented, but based on real people that I saw around the lake and behaviors that I saw around the lake. Without giving away the uh, the the climax of this short story. Tell us about the character Angelica. Just, you know, give us some little insight into Angelica and what she's going through, her mental process. Here's Angelica, a young woman, uh, Hispanic in, in uh, origin, of course, and she's, uh, she was, as a young girl, she was attracted to a, a fellow at the lake and, uh, uh, not even a romance particularly blossomed, although she, uh, as a young girl, felt giddy in love with this guy and, and ultimately became pregnant and things didn't work out and, and because of age difference and many other things. And so here's a mother with a child and she's trying to get back into school to get, gain education so that she can become something and support herself. Well, the father enters back into the picture. And uh, slowly but surely, she wants him to get to know his and her son. But here she's torn uh, because she has a goal now. Boy, she's got a goal. She's going to make something of herself. She doesn't want to be caught back in this trap uh, with this man. But uh, this is all then pictured because she's waiting for him. They've come to a point where she allows him to take the, their son that they share uh, for an evening, and he's not returned the son. And this is uh, the setting is in a, in the winter time, and she's sitting in her car, and it's cold, and and that increases her anxiety. And where can her uh, uh, the father's her son's father be? He's late bringing back the son, and all this anxiety is carried through in the icy cold of this car. That is Angelica. Now, why do you take us to England? Well, England, uh, I just look for variety. Uh, I took you to England because I witnessed uh, an episode similar to what happened in Balby in this story, and I thought it would be interesting. And uh, it could happen anywhere, but this one did happen in England. And then you have, I guess, a comment about death and taxes. You know, the things that we all can count on, right? Well, uh, you know, there's always that saying, uh, uh, you know, about death and taxes. And uh, here's Loomis in uh, Death and Taxes. And and Loomis has uh, lived a a long life, but uh, uh, unbeknownst to him, uh, taxes are coming due. And, uh, well, you'll have to read the story to find out. Who wins, death or taxes? So it's an interesting story. 
You have another title, Never Be Afraid Again. Never Be Afraid Again uh, is a story that I wrote pertaining to uh, concealed weapon carry and uh, how concealed weapon carry can make us feel very safe. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Yes, it may be just uh, an illusion, huh? (laughs) Well, you'll have to read the story. That's right. That's right. When you... you when you can feel that weapon against you, I guess, you know, it's a different feeling than when you don't have it on. <laughs> yes, I'm sure that's true. And who's Petey? Petey is a parrot. <laughs> okay, I'm glad is, I asked. I this, know, is, Petey. this is my fictional choice for, <laughs> uh, for comedy, uh, humor. <laughs> okay. And um, Petey is a parrot that uh, comes in to see this veterinarian via his owner, and Petey looks dead as a doornail in the cage. But uh, anyway, this young veterinarian can has optimistic that he can save anyone's life. But uh, anyway, uh, you'll get some laughs out of that story. <laughs> right. He's a, a parrot full of surprises. Tell us about your website. My website uh, is easy to access. It's www.davidluck.net. So it's just my name and .net. And you can find out more information about me and uh, and also information about my uh, other books that are available also. And we can get your book through iUniverse, as well as, I'm sure, all the online retailers. That is correct. Uh, Amazon.com, Barnes & Nobles, any bookstore can, uh, can arrange to uh, get the book for you. Well, David, we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you very much uh, for talking with me, Steve, and uh, enjoy Scraps. That was David Luck, the author of his book, Scraps, Fictional Fragments. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.